That's rolling. Okay. Welcome to episode 147 of... Let me start that over. Welcome to episode 147 of Auto Off Topic. What's up, Brad? Not much, Andrew. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Excellent. Is it uh, still cold and rainy in the Northeast? No. Uh, Did I just start this podcast with weather? Yes, you did. Uh, Excellent. And today has been, and yesterday was beautiful. So, um, we can get right into Project Car updates, I guess, because it's pretty much all I've been working on is helping out Iron Oxide Racing with the Spaghetti GTI. Uh, they were doing an ABA swap to that car, so it'll yep. have like fifty more horsepower, which is pretty significant for a little car like that. Significant when the car had like eighty to begin with. Exactly, and crappy CIS injection. It'll have real fuel injection and OBD2, which is nice. But it required... They sent out the harness or a... Yeah, they sent out the Mark III harness and then a guy pared it down and just to what they need to run the engine. So there's there's a separate engine harness that has to be wired in. So it's pretty much... That part's plug and play, but you have to hook it up to existing some existing stuff in the car to like turn the ignition on and wire it to the fuel pump because they have they have to run a mark three fuel tank and a mark three fuel pump and all that stuff it's interesting they didn't change much between the mark three and mark two like they like the layout of a lot of stuff is the same i know a lot of parts are i don't want to say universal but able to be used back and forth yeah it's not like uh it's not like the same car underneath, but they reused a lot of the engineering, I guess. Um, and then so like stuff lines up and you wouldn't expect it to because it seemed like a, between a Mark II and a Mark III seemed like such a different car kind of. Yeah, they seem much bigger. But they really aren't. They're pretty close. So then there's a bunch of wiring inside that these people messed up with like the lighting and stuff. So that's going to get done. Yeah, that's not... Not the people that made the harness, but the original builders of the Spaghetti GTA. Yes. Uh, or, the, or the previous owners, whoever did it. Yeah, whoever did it. A lot of stuff just like hand twisted together with some electrical tape. No wire nuts, but uh, yeah, those little uh, T... So one, so one step better than the Galat. Yeah, I mean, those little um, T-taps or alligator clips or vampire connectors, whatever you want to call them, in a couple places. We're going to set it up so that the uh well also to all the it needs a hard kill switch uh it didn't have the correct kill switch before and they kind of grandfathered it in but now uh for this year it needs to have the correct type of kill switch to kill the battery in case of an emergency so that has to be that all has to be hooked up and it's pretty straightforward like electrically the car is very simple and I just been going through the factory harness and eliminating stuff that's not being used anymore. I went through and took out all the engine control stuff out of it. So now it's only a body harness that goes to the front of the car. It's only running wipers, uh, like lights, and then your of course your brake lights, turn signals, all that stuff, and then running like gauge lights and some of the fuse panels still powered up. And we'll probably like uh, Jordan needs a couple USB plugs to power phones because they don't use that. They don't use a rally computer anymore. You use your phone instead, tablets. Yep. It's a lot easier. Right. So we'll probably hardwire uh, USB ports into what would be the radio wiring because that would be powered on when the car is turned on instead of having to splice it into one you know, cigarette lighter socket. I've now got a couple unused circuits that we can use for stuff like that. So That's it, pretty neat. Yeah, it's not... Uh, it's not that complicated. It's just a mess and just going through and cleaning up. It's just patience required. Yeah. And at least like, I mean, last Saturday, uh, the guy that made the harness is pretty good. Like you can email him and he'll ask, he'll answer questions, but like he didn't send super detailed instructions on it or how it was laid out. So I basically mapped the entire engine harness just to double check where everything was going. And then it was like, okay, that all makes sense. And then looking in the Bentley manual, it at least all the wiring colors match up, which is good. So when you're looking at stuff, you're like, okay, this wire goes to here like it's supposed to, and 
and just running continuity checks with the multimeter and just checking where everything goes. Right. And then I got to use a power probe that my dad bought me for Christmas, and we checked the fuel. The um, yeah, I actually checked the the fuel pump, got it to turn on, um, and the used uh, cooling fan motor turned on, so that's good. So we know those work. So neat stuff like that. Hopefully, I can finish it in the next week because that'll give them a cushion to get the rest of the car back together. Yeah, because it's only it's next month. I mean, it's in mid July. Yeah, well, happens. before that, really, the deadline is before Jan- uh, January, before July seventh, because that is a rally sprint at Team O'Neill, and that is like the a good hu- shakedown. It's the yeah, it's the best place to shake this car down, and really the only chance they're gonna have to shake it down. So, um, we're really trying to get it done for that. And hopefully it works out. I think it will. I don't think we're that far off, but no, I don't think so. We're doing our. Best. I actually just bought my plane ticket yesterday to come home for the rally. Cool. Yep. So I'll be there, helping out. Yep. Stoked on that actually. Yeah. Oh, there was a. There's another car involved there that you purchased. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but sure, we could talk about it. I purchased that. Um, uh, 1993 Mitsubishi Eclipse, uh, Euro Market GS. So it's a 93 Eclipse. So it's a first gen Eclipse. Um, but the weird thing is in Germany, they sold them with pop up headlights from 1990 through 1995. That is weird. It's very bizarre. And also, they that means that the normal Illinois plant built pop-up headlight cars alongside non-pop-up headlight cars yeah shipped to europe very very strange yeah very strange right so it's a 4g63 car uh it's not a turbo they didn't get the turbo in germany all they got the highest trim level was the gs which was a front wheel drive 4g63 um so at least it has the twin cam mitsubishi motor it's not like a chrysler motor second gen non-turbo car um so it's still, you know, a decent little fun little car. It's not going to be a race car by any means, um, but it's got a lot of cool little European touches to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Euro cars didn't get pass-throughs in the front lights. They were solid in the back for some reason. Hmm. Um, there's a weird little vent in the headlight that I assume is for the pass-through of the light. Yeah, but I haven't gotten. I haven't actually looked at the car in person yet. I bought this car sight unseen. Um, it has black rub strips, which was only, I think, in 1990 here in the GS, right? One of the early production cars. So It's like 89 cars. Yeah, cars built in 89 for 1990. Yeah. So, But this is a 93, and it has black rub strips. Uh, it's got Euro bumpers, which are way shorter than the American bumpers, especially the rear. It's very significant in the rear. Oh, really? Yep. This, the uh, car doesn't have big overhangs in the bumpers anyways. Not as significant as like a Gallant does. Right. But if you look at the Euro one, the back bumpers are significantly shorter. Like is it almost flush with the... It's almost flush, yeah. Really? Yep. Um, I, I was just like wiping mine down with the spray wax the other day, and it, it's only like an inch and a half of like... Yeah. Well, the Euro one's like a quarter to a half an inch. Whoa. It's very, very small. Yeah. Um. It's got amber turn signals front and rear, mm-hmm. whereas the American one said red rear and clear front. Um, and it has side markers in the fenders. It also has non-automatic seatbelts. It has the standard like manual belts. Yeah, they got those in Canada. Yep. Um, obviously, it's got kilometers per hour, you know, speedometer, and the mileage is in kilometers on the car. Um, and there's a bunch of other random little tiny things that are different. Um, but I'm kind of excited to get it. So, uh, unfortunately it does have a pretty good dent in the driver's side quarter panel. Um, so the plan is to, I'm actually flying from Arizona to Alabama to pick the car up in July and then driving the car from Alabama to Boston where while we go to the rally and stuff, hopefully it'll be at a body shop getting the dent fixed. Um, and go from there. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm pretty stoked. It's going to be, uh, 
a fun little driver. It's not like I said, it's not a race car by any means. It's not a drag car. It's not a super fast all-wheel drive turbo Eclipse, but I think it'll be a nice little cruiser. Something you can use, you know, go up in the mountain passes around here with. Hmm. Decent suspension setup and a set of tires and should be fun. Neat. So, yeah, the seller uh, is a friend of mine and he, uh, I was nervous about getting in the car and driving it with unknown belts. So he just did the timing belt and the balance belt brand new in the car this week. Um, he did did a pad slap on the car, um, you know, fluid changes, and uh, I'm ordering four new tires and having them sent to him. So it'll have four brand new tires on it as well. So it'll be good for driving all over the country with. Hmm. So, yeah, it should be interesting. We'll see how that one goes. Cool. That's the plan anyway. The, pl- the plan is to get it, drive it to Boston, do some things in Boston for a couple of weeks, and then get in the car and drive back across the country. And uh, hopefully debut the car at the Radwood NorCal show. Yeah, neat. Yeah, because that's one week after the rally. Cool. Yep, should be fun. So, no project car update there, but future project car update. Uh huh. And then, so. what did you? Um, you sent me a picture. You were helping out our buddy Ron with the steering. Yeah, Ron. Ron LP. Um, he has the. That silvery beige Starion that's been to a bunch of Radwoods with us. Right. Um, and actually, the Radwood organization, um, he won a set of Momo Heritage. Is that Momo Heritage 6, I think is the name of it? I think so. Yeah, so he won a set of those wheels um, in any size, any offset, any fitment that he wanted. So obviously, you know, for the Starion. So he's been hemming and hawing about what to do for sizes and offsets. Um, but also said that, you know, well, I'm not going to put these cool brand new wheels on a car with stock suspension. So I might as well find a way to get the car lower, um, make it sit right with the new wheels. So we did a little research uh, and there's two or three companies offering a full coilover setup for a Starion. You can no longer buy replacement rear struts for a Starion yep. from any manufacturer. Yeah. Nobody makes them. So the coilover setup is really the only way to go. Yeah. Um, um, to be rebuildable, replaceable. Because they have, you know, inserts in them. Whereas the, the Starion strut on the bottom where it mounts, it's almost like a it's like a little diamond shape with two bolts that go into the into the knuckle. And just nobody makes that strut anymore. Yep. Which is unfortunate. You can still get front struts with the cars, but not rears. So when they blow out, the only thing you can do to replace them is a full coilover. Which is, you know, maybe overkill for some, but it at least it gives you an option that is rebuildable when it does fail. So um, there's a company out of Florida, a very small company. Um, it's a guy who just builds Starion parts um, and a few... Believe it or not, uh, mid '90s Mirage parts. Hmm. His company is called Legion Motorsports, mm-hmm. um, but he builds these coilovers, which I'm, I'm not sure exactly where he gets all the supplies from. But obviously, he gets you know supplies of springs and the in the inserts and the the actual coil part, the um, adjuster part, and everything from some manufacturer somewhere, and he builds them to a staring spec. Um, and there was a group buy on the Starion forums, and it was, I think it was just under $600 shipped for a set of four with camber plates in the front. Right. Which is pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even if they're not, you know, they're not going to be, you know, top of the line, JIC, you know, whatever quality parts, but they're pretty good components. Um, everything in the rear bolted right in like it was built by a high-volume manufacturer. Um, and everything in the front is going together pretty well. The difference with the front is, like a lot of cars, the only way to install them is you have to cut the factory knuckles and weld the uh, bottom of the coilover strut tube to the knuckle. Oh. Oh, so, yeah. the, so the lower collar obviously is steel. Yes. You can weld it. It's like a giant piece of internally threaded rod. 
Yeah, so some DIY uh, necessary for these quote-unquote bolt-on, yep. right? Right, and that's every set that's available. Even even the major manufacturer ones have the same setup in the front. I feel like this is a common thing, though, with a lot of 80s rear-wheel drive Japanese cars. It's common on a lot of rear-wheel drive cars because the knuckles, where the knuckles are designed. Yeah, it was the, the, the strut actually goes into the bottom, the basically the top of the knuckle. Yeah, so. it was a. This was just a common design of rear-wheel drive cars. Yep, one hundred percent. And especially early McPherson strut cars, so they had the little knuckle, and then you'd have the yep. wheel I bearing. Remember, uh, I remember from the, like having a Cressida when I was looking at Cressida suspension. It was the same with those. You had to cut the factory front knuckles and weld right. the, weld the bottom tube onto them. So. That's the only place that we've run into any trouble with this setup. Um, our main problem with it is that the strut tube is bigger than the tube coming off the knuckle. So it doesn't fit tight over it like a sleeve. Hmm. It's like there's a gap. So um, where we left it off on Saturday, which I haven't talked to Ron since Saturday. I'm not sure if he's worked on it yet or not. Um, well, I haven't talked to him Sunday, but we had duck cars. Um, <clears throat> the we drilled three holes in the sides of the tube, right? Um, to put little set screws in there, so that we could have an even gap the whole way around in order to weld it with an even gap. But okay. even doing that, it's very difficult to make it sit steady and even all the way around. Huh. So I think we might go back to the drawing board and get some um, at the metal flashing. The really thin sheet metal you can buy at Home Depot with the holes in it. Right. And maybe see if we can wrap that one time around and see if that makes it the difference in it. And then pin it from there because, you know, we're afraid that the second you start welding on it, that really thin sheet metal inside is just going to burn away. Right. So it'll start getting floppy again. So if we can put that in there to make it even and then pin it from there so that we can weld it without fear of it moving. It's interesting, too. You have to be very... Oh, no. I'm sorry. The shock body is not involved in this. There's no shock sure. body involved. Sure, no, sure, sure. Fire. Yep. That threads into this tube. Right, right, right. Yeah, so there's no heat around the yeah, shock body. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yep. Um, yeah. no, we, this did, is... we did find the old shock body when cutting the um, the struts open. Because we, we cut the you know top of the knuckle off, and it goes right through the bottom of the strut. Mm -hmm. So it definitely squirted us with some... Yeah, committed. High pressure. Um, yeah, it's like you can't get why no one makes direct replacement uh, GD WRX struts for some reason. I mean, they made a lot of these cars. Seriously? No, except all. It's just KYB. That's it. Huh. And they're garbage. And but so if you want conies, you got to cut in the conies to factory struts. Huh. Strange. And that seems like such a common car too. You, if you want, G yeah. GD is the first WRX, right? That's the O. Yep. Two or whatever. No? Yeah. yeah. First WRX here, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and but it, it's crazy too. I mean, Coney just released bolt-in struts for Fox Body Mustangs, so maybe, maybe there's hope. Um, yeah, I mean, Fox Body Mustang is a much more common car than a Starion. Yeah. But uh, it's like. On a Eclipse, Gallant, Talon, you have to use, if you want to put conies in, again, you have to cut them in. And then the rear conies for a first-gen Gallant VR4 are no longer made, but apparently third-gen conies will work. Third-gen Eclipse? Third-gen Eclipse rear conies, yeah, will work. Mm. So likely the next suspension setup on either one of those cars I own is going to be uh, fuel mix and base. Yeah, apparently Fuel makes a decent coilover setup for them now yeah. that people are liking. So that is the unfortunate part of certain underloved 80s and 90s cars. That part of the market right. hasn't quite caught up to replacement parts form or well, it's again, evaporated. Well, at least the, the coilover market is, you know, at least there. Yeah, the at economy there, of scale. Yeah. How much it costs to make these things has come down. And they're actually... They're really not that like the quality differences are really not that big anymore. No, you no. Get... Like I said, looking at this setup that was like I said, sub six hundred dollars shipped from you know Florida to built special for him. Like he ordered it and the guy builds it 
and sends it to him, it was less than 600 bucks, and the quality is not bad. And if you can go with a spring that's much softer than, like, if you don't go with, like, a super, super stiff spring, they really work quite well. Yep. That was the early days of cheap coilovers. They had way too stiff a spring, and they just didn't Mm -hmm. work that well. And, you know, the secret is to have a nice, softly sprung car that has travel in the suspension, and it'll ride fine. Yep. And it'll proper dampening, proper travel. Yeah, it'll actually handle better if it's a little bit soft because you have better grip. I mean, at least that's the way I feel and uh, s- some other people that are subscribed to that type of theory of suspension tuning. So I feel especially on a street car. Especially on a street car. If you're working yeah. on a racetrack car and it's a perfectly smooth track, then you're going to need as stiff as possible to get the most out of those super sticky, slick tires. But yeah. uh, for fast street driving, canyon carving, you need some... You need compliance. Some spring rate compliance, yeah. Make a better car. All right. Anyway. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that's going along pretty well. Um, hopefully we'll get that finished up in time. Also, his plan is to go drive from Phoenix to the Radwood NorCal show as well. Um, so he'll be driving from Phoenix. I'll be driving from Boston. We'll meet up there and caravan back down here together. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So that's it for project car updates that are actual project cars. I do have an interesting story about registering the Jetta here in Arizona. All right. Go ahead. Um, So in Massachusetts, obviously you register the car first and then you get it inspected, right? Right. In Arizona, they don't have a safety inspection. Savages. Right. And there's some real crap on the road because of it. (laughs) Oh, I Um, I have a story about that too. They're... Where was I with that? Oh, okay. So you need emissions inspection only mm-hmm. on every car newer than, I think, 1968. Which you have a modern OBD car. Should be no problem. Correct. Um, and actually, if you drive with antique car insurance, you don't need to have emissions inspection. Because obviously, your insurance company is limiting you to five or 10,000 miles a year mm-hmm. and they know the rules and they just say, okay, no emissions on cars that have antique insurance. So not all is lost. You don't actually need emissions inspection on all your vintage stuff. If it's no. under a vintage insurance no. policy, but so many people yeah. drive very old cars out there that if you had no emissions and they're just driving Correct. these old cars around, that's kind of bad. Correct. Which is why they do it that way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so you go to the register, I went to the registry to register the car. And she said, oh, did you have it inspected yet? And I said, no, I have not. I haven't registered it yet. And she said, no, you need to have it inspected before you can register it. Which I thought was strange. That is weird. Right. So I was like, okay, well, where do I go do that? Because they have state-run inspection stations. Um, The inspection stations here aren't at a gas station. They're Mm -hmm. their own standalone. The one particular one I went to was like, Six bays, double deep bays. Hmm. You roll into the back and you take a number, like a deli counter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you basically wait your turn and they and they roll you in. Hmm. Um, they do, depending on what year your car is, they either just do the OBD plug with a little sniffer on the tailpipe. Um, some years have to go on rollers. Some years don't. I don't know the specifics, unfortunately. I have to look into that again. Um, so I roll in. And the guy's looking at my car and he goes, is this a diesel? And I said, yep. He's like, all right, we got to wait for Larry. And I was like, okay, I'll wait for Larry. Because apparently he's the diesel guy. Larry the diesel guy. Larry the diesel guy, yes. So I roll forward and wait for this diesel specialist. And finally this guy comes over and he goes, this thing's diesel? I said, yep. He goes, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm pretty positive. Um, And he goes, all right, drive straight forward to the end of the building, like inside the building. Which is also strange because in Massachusetts, no garage would ever let you drive inside the garage. No. Right. So I drive into the garage. I pull forward to the main front bay, um, which is past the rollers. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm not going to go on the rollers. Uh, and he walks over to me with this white piece of paper. And he goes, all right, sign right here. He goes, let me get the VIN number. He does like the scans, the VIN tag on the door. Um, looks at the car, does like one walk around the car, walks back over the computer. Comes back with that white piece of paper and goes, All right, you passed. Huh. That would be $9. What? And I was like, Okay, what did you do? Like, just out of genuine curiosity, I wanted to know, like, what just happened. 
And he's like, well, I can't test the diesel cars. I was like, okay. He goes, so you get this white piece of paper that says equipment failure on our end. And you just go to the registry and you register the car. Weird. I was like, okay. He's like, the problem is, he goes, if I put the sniffer into the exhaust pipe, he oh. goes, the way the diesel particulates are and the soot, he goes, it'll clog the system and my machine will be down for the day while I try to get it rebooted. Oh, weird. clean it all out. He's like, so I'd rather just send you on your way. Your car's obviously not blowing black smoke. He goes, so it must, and it's a fairly new car. It must be clean enough. He's like, I'm not, and there's no, you know, check engine lights or anything going on like that. He goes, so I'm just going to send you on your way. He oh. goes, because it screws up our equipment to put the sniffer in the diesel pipes. Oh, weird. I was like, okay. I was like, so I pay you $9 to do absolutely nothing. And he's like, basically, <laughs> he's like, but you can't get, a, you can't get registration without it. And I was like, touche, sir. Here's your $9. I said, so who, how do diesels ever fail? He goes, well, if we get it, like a big truck comes in, like a, like an F-250, F-350, you know, big Silverado. He's like, and the truck's jacked way up in the air with big tires and big mirrors. He goes, we'll crawl around it a little bit and make sure it still has its emissions on it. Yeah, because you'll kind of know that it'll probably be modified. <laughs> right. Right. So if one of those trucks come in, yeah, we're going to look at it a little closer. He goes, your car comes in and it's a bone stock Volkswagen Jetta. He goes, you don't have all this, you know, custom EGR delete and all that stuff going on. And I was like, no, I don't. And he's like, but if you came in here in a big custom truck, or actually if you came in here in this car and it was like really low, big wheels and loud exhaust, he's like, we'd look a little closer. He goes, but the majority of vehicles we kind of figure out are, there's a stereotype. <laughs> he's like, and if you're going to default your emission system, you're probably not going to roll in here in a stock vehicle. Oh, common sense. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, most people that fail come in here and they have, you know, an obvious modified vehicle. And we're like, all right, well, we have to look at this now. So, so a pro tip, if you want to hot rod your diesel truck or your diesel car in Arizona, leave it on stock wheels when you get your sticker. (laughs) Yeah. So So I, uh... so that was interesting. And then, so that you don't have safety inspections out here. So, in order to do Uber, Uber does their own safety inspections. Right. Because they're liable, obviously, for yeah. the passengers in your car. Yeah. So you have to do what basically amounts to the same safety inspection as in Massachusetts. Um, but it's done at different service centers out here. Like, I actually went to a Jiffy Lube and just rolled in the thing. Yeah, and, because uh, out there, people will literally run with ball tires until they explode. Yeah, and they do every day. There are so many blown up tires and flat tires inside of the highway here. It's not even funny. Yeah. Cars are broken ball joints. Like it's just, there's no safety inspection. And because there's also no common sense in most drivers, most of the car is dangerous. Yeah. You just run it till it falls apart. Yep. Cause I don't know what else you do. If you don't care about a car, then it's an appliance and you just drive it till it breaks. Right. And you like, either, I don't maintain my refrigerator. Just I use it till it breaks and I buy a new one. Yeah, it's like a, a thing is the car is disposable, so yep. kind of crazy. So I actually had to bring the Montero in for its yearly inspection, and of course it's only on safety because it's old enough. And uh, last year it failed for, the guy said ball joints, turns out it was wheel bearings were loose, so I, I followed the factory procedure, I retightened them. They still had some play, which I thought was normal. I got them to pass it for me last year and then this year they wouldn't same place wouldn't pass it again because it had the same amount of play so i was like super annoyed looked into it checked with uh toasty fab on instagram the uh yep. montero, montero guru montero guru and he's like no mine have mine spin freely and they have no play so it's basically it's an old school setup where you can set the tension on the nut because it's got a cone-shaped spindle uh i didn't have the tool but my dad was like, no, no, let me show you the old school way to do it. So he took just a punch and we just punched him just tight enough that the play went away and the thing spun, the wheel spins freely. Cause you don't have to take the wheel off to do it. I just had to take the auto, the, Bob Gap. the um, no, the free wheel hub off, which oh, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, have free wheel yeah, hubs. Yeah. I have manual locking hubs. Right. So I just had to unbolt them and, uh, yeah, we just set, I just set them like that. It took me like an hour, and I went back, 
you know, a day later and got the sticker. But so that's not as no more, no more play at all, but they run freely. So there's a weird part of the factory service manual where you, if you're installing brand new bearings, you tighten them into like 160, 160 foot pounds and they, it doesn't move at all. Then you back it to zero. So it must be something where it sets the bearings in place. And then you're supposed to torque it to 18 foot pounds with the special socket. Um, and then, then it says turn back 30 to 40 degrees, which is kind of weird. That's like the last step, but then you're basically have zero torque again. So that's what I did, not realizing that. And then you have to line up a lock ring with the two screws so it doesn't spin back off. So that's why I had it set. So it was like better than it was before, but not good enough. Good enough for the state inspector. And it shouldn't have had any play anyways, um, but I didn't drive the truck that much. so And the bearings weren't making any noise, so that, that's they're fine. Right. Bearings like that are seem to last longer than the new style of bearings. So that yeah, was the other thing too. I ended up having those front calipers. One of them was seizing up last year, so it like probably also threw me off a bit. So, but it's all set. I got a sticker now. It's cool. Nice. Um, I think that's it for project car updates. I have no others. Yeah, have... I have no others. You have no others. All right, real quick before we get too far into questions. So New Hampshire Cars and Coffee is Sunday, June 30th, the Coffee Factory. And uh, so check the Facebook event for details and updates. And there is also a Radwood New England Live and Let Die or Live and Rad Die. I forgot there. The local Radwood group, the little splinter group, is having a meetup after or at Cars and Coffee and then doing some stuff afterwards. So yep. if you're in New England and you've got a... Radwood Eric Carr, you can go hang out with everyone and, and meet local Radwood fans. Uh, it's not an official Radwood event, just a meetup for fans of Radwood Yeah, it's definitely stuff. not an official event. Nope, so. not at all. You have to really press that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just meant for uh, people to, to know each other and hang out. So that's what's going on there. But we've got some questions. I guess we'll go to Facebook first. Yes, we do. Uh, so first one. Jordan Millam, why do people spread the false notion that it's better to buy a pre-built rally car than to build one from scratch? Well, I don't know. I think it comes down to budget for purchasing built rally car. I also think it comes down to buying a rally car that's been used in the past 10 years. Yes. Which is something that they did not do. No. And their rally car was inexpensive. And I don't think they're... Correct. They're not really that upset. He's just being funny about it. Like... They've yeah. gotten a lot of experience out of this car, so it's it's worth it in that yes, sense. So whoever wants to buy a used rally car when they're done with it will get a great car. Exactly. <laughs> um, if you were to buy a built car that's been built in the last 10 years, you're going to spend north of 10 grand easily. 100%. So that's why, depending on what it is, like the minimum is probably 8 to 10 grand. I, I believe... Um, Dave Baker's uh, Golf, which was a gorgeous car, I think he had it for eight to ten grand uh, for sale. Um, so yeah, I think it was more than that. Was it more than that? Yeah, I bet sure it, was it was. A, it was a super nice, proven car that's finished a ton of rallies and really well built. So that's where you're gonna pay. That's that's where your money. That's what's kind of a bummer, right? You're like these rally cars are old, but the problem is. Cages are expensive, safety equipment's expensive, and then knowing that the car is put together and it will finish. Yeah, whether your quote car unquote, is it'll 80, finish. Yeah, whether your car is an eighty-seven Golf or a two thousand and seventeen Zuru, the cage is going to cost about the same. Exactly. And tires are going to cost similar, and safety equipment's all going to cost the same. Yeah. So that's the big thing: getting a car that is a known finisher. As long as somebody doesn't put it in the woods, and you're good about driving it, it'll finish. That's a big deal. That really jacks the price up. And and yep. then sometimes they'll come with spares. So it's, I think for your first car, I think it's still a good idea to buy a car that's pre-built. Yeah, yeah. But just again, try to find one that's been built in the past. That's been used competitively recently. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the big thing with the spaghetti golf was a lot of it was bringing it up to current standards. The cage had to be fixed up. 
they're putting an engine then it's got more power in it and yeah we're fixing all the wiring up so it's nice and um we're just making it so that it's reliable it's not you know you don't want the fastest thing in the world you just want a car that's going to run and run well and let you finish it because that's what's important is the experience of finishing it is what's important yeah, you pay a lot of money for everything, and you might as well get the most out of it by finishing the whole rally. Exactly. So, I mean, you're not going to go out there in your amateur event and beat the professionals. So, no. get that notion out of your head and just try to but, have a good time, you know, and and finish over placing well. Yeah, being nice, it's it's nice. Well, it's the best thing is to finish. The second best thing is maybe you get a class podium or something. Right. Because every, every every finisher is a victor is a victorious. <laughs> exactly, and if you run consistently, you might just win that war of attrition, and you might gain a podium seat because other people break. So yep, that's where that is. Uh, all right, next question, Tyler Brevogel. Do you guys think that the car show trend will ever get back to being about performance again, or is it that, or is that style dying? I went to a local car show. It was wheels, tires, airbags, camber, plus front lip, equals show car, and built. So I have some I, opinions on that. Let me – Yeah. I'll go through okay, them go first. So I think it's – it had to do with the economy. The economy tanked. People stopped putting performance into their quote-unquote show cars. It was cheaper to just do suspension, wheels, stock paint, stock interior – Plus, that style kind of changed from wild paint, wild interiors. And that's sort of the thing that car shows are now because the people realize that the performance doesn't really add anything to their static car. Yeah, it's a car show, not a race. Yeah, so I think that's where that is. But I remember in the like late 90s, early 2000s, people would have all the performance stuff done to the car and have a crazy paint job and have like this crazy shaved engine bay and have like a super nice interior and nice wheels and like that was a thing and then the bottom kind of fell out i don't think that was ever very common though it wasn't I mean, very think, common but i think back to car shows even in my youth in the 80s and it was always an emphasis on style or performance because again they're building the car to go to car shows maybe you know if even even the big pro street cars of the day you know, they were pro street cars. They had drag looking suspension, drag looking engines. Um, some of them might have had performance built engines in them. I think a lot of but them a did. Lot of, uh, but a lot of them didn't have a good running, were in a good running car because yeah. they would overbuild these, you know, crazy drag engines and then drive them on the street to the car shows. And you can't really do that. Yeah. So I think that the majority of cars that are built that go to car shows aren't going to be the top end of performance. They're going to be exhaust, wheels, suspension. I mean, that goes back to the dawn of time. It's That's just how cars are. Look at the show cars in the 60s. They were all the big late 50s and early 60s, all the big like lead sleds. And like they were just chopped and channeled and cut and dropped on the ground with hubcaps. Like that's just the way show cars have always been. It's never been about big fast the fastest car in the parking lot doesn't win the car show you know I, it's not it's i mean people that want to win at car shows and they don't care about that i mean i saw last night at cruise night it was like a 66 or 67 chevelle really pretty metallic blue paint it seemed like it was probably in a late 80s 90s build mm-hmm. um single color you know nothing crazy the colors super clean engine bay but it had a like a 427 with a blower on it with mm-hmm. the things sticking out of the hood and everything was super clean and well put together. So to me, yeah, that's like a show car. It's probably fast as hell. Um, Except that it have like 15 inch wheels that were, you know, 15 by sixes. No, no, it had nice, it had Craig or drag wheels and like drag tires okay. in the back. No, it was fully built like a fully built show car, but right. it probably only ever goes to cruise night. Like he probably never right. takes it to New England dragway for street night. Right. And that's just the way it was built, which is fine. That's your prerogative if you want to do that. But I don't think that's very – you're right. That wasn't very common then. Uh, it was probably like the very – but I'm thinking it's of like – been the outliers. I'm thinking of like Volkswagen shows in the late 90s, 2000s, like the way those cars are built. 
But even then, most of them would have a stock VR, like a, like a Mark II with a stock VR6 swap. Yeah, but that's like a lot of performance. It's, it's a lot more performance, but it's not like, it's not a race car. It's not, right. you, you, there's, no, there's no legal place to race a Mark II with a VR6 swap. Yeah. Like it would be outclassed everywhere because it had to be in like an unlimited open class. And then, and now it's no longer an unlimited open class car. Now it's just a hot rod Mark II. It's a, it's a fast street car. It's not a race car by any means. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've always been kind of jaded by the whole race car, show car thing. Um, I enjoy going to like local cruise nights and like cars and coffees and that kind of thing. Um, just to see the variety of cars that are there. But mm-hmm. I've never, I've never like got into that whole the car show thing where you go and you compete and try to win trophies. No, it just doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. I, I like my cars to drive on the street. That's what I do with cars. I mean, yeah, we used to do the occasional autocross. We've done the occasional, you know, street night at the dragway, but never any. That's just for fun. For me, it was never anything beyond. I like a car that's enjoyable to drive on the street. If I'm going to spend my money on something, I want it to be something that's enjoyable to me for whatever reason to take out on a Friday night or take out into the mountains of New Hampshire or Vermont or now Arizona. I've never really been into anything other than that. Yeah, like I'll keep the engine bay from looking dingy. I clean it. But I don't. Absolutely. I'm not going to do a crazy color change under there and like all this stuff. It's just, that's just right. too much for me. I, I don't want to do that. Right. Um, but yeah. And you know, maybe it's just because I never had the right car. Maybe I never had a car that was a show quality show car. So I never understood why people would want to have a show quality show car. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if I had that car, I would get it. You know, I used to go to car shows with my dad when I was a kid that were, you know, competition car shows and, We'd, we'd park, you know, his 67 Camaro amongst all the other first-gen Camaros, and then everybody else would be wiping their cars down and cleaning them, and we'd just walk around and look at everything that was going on. And I remember on more than one occasion, people would get upset because, like, you know, the guy who just rolled in would get the trophy in their car. They spent the whole car show cleaning, wouldn't get a trophy. And just to me, that was always like, so why bother? <laughs> like, you've wasted your day now. <laughs> you could have cleaned your car in your garage. <laughs> right. So whatever. All right, you got questions and because you shared it to your Facebook page, you get those questions pulled up or? Uh, no, I just got one sarcastic question from Joe Osborne asking if it's really a dry heat. Okay. All so, right, let's go to uh, answers. Yes. Let's go to Instagram. Sure I don't thing. You, I don't know if you've got it pulled up or I'll, I can start with it. I do have it pulled up because I think this one's directed at you. The first one I've got at least from Yeti Overland on my screen. All right, I don't have it pulled up. All right. How many cars is at TDI SS454 eventually going to move to Phoenix? <laughs> and will he double flat tow them behind the Raider? Well, they're not being double flat tow behind the Raider because the Raider can't even tow itself. So that's step number one. Yeah. Um, the Raider will probably be sold, I think, because there's no reason for me to bring that rusty vehicle out <laughs> here to Arizona. Nope. Um, and I can buy them out here for like. A large iced coffee price? Yeah, basically. So, um, how many cars am I eventually going to move to Phoenix? I would say four to five. All right. Depending your, on what day of the week you ask. So make your dad happy? Yeah, well, he knows what's going on. He's, <laughs> it's all been discussed with him. If he's being sarcastic about it still when he talks to you about the cars, are still oh, yeah. there. He knows the plan. He knows the plan. So, whatever. He knows the plan. Um. The plan is there isn't a plan. And actually, technically, yeah, no, there's, never mind. I was going to say there's only three cars in his yard, but then I remembered there's only three cars in that one part of his yard. Yeah. <laughs> there's two more elsewhere. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, it'll be four to five cars eventually. There's already two here. Um, that Eclipse is coming out here next. Then hopefully the Blue Colt and the Yellow Colt will follow behind. So Cool. A little out of time. All right. Speaking Next question. Of, speaking of Monteros, uh, Mike Samcan, the Montero seems like it's quickly becoming cost-effective alternative to to Toyotas. Any buying tips? What's the best year, engine, and transmission combination? So first of all, on, yeah, it depends what you want to do with it. First of all, I would send him to the uh, Adventure Driven Design forums 
Yep. You will find everything you need to know there and a buyer's guide, but we'll cover some quick stuff here. If you want a first gen, the most desirable one, obviously, is the short wheelbase V6 manual transmission. Yes, that's what I was going to go with. Yep. Um, then from there, it would be the long wheelbase. So that would be 89 through 91 of a first gen. Uh, yep. You can get them in both manual or auto. Manual, unlikely to find the LS version with the bouncy seat and gauge pack on the dashboard. Right. It's usually a stripper. Yep. Um, later ones were a little, had more options. So like a late, like 91. Uh, and they even had two-tone paint at that point. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty trucks. First gen, four cylinders, manuals, uh, decent truck, small gas tank. Uh, should be Weber swapped right away. Yep. If, if you can. They don't get great fuel mileage either for their small, they don't. small gas tank. Um, if you're in a place that doesn't do emissions testing and you can get away with removing the original carb, 100% put a Weber on there. It will make the truck much more, much more reliable. Yes. Uh, I guess I've been told, I've heard that the manual's can be weak, but I mean, I guess just be careful with them, as with any manual transmission. So, with a manual gearbox on those particular trucks, yeah, um, the key is to jack the rear of the truck up um, and have the tires off the ground a couple of inches, right? When you're filling the transmission, right? Because the, the reason that they're they fail is because they don't have much; yeah. they don't completely get full of fluid if they're filled on a flat surface. Yep. So the and the other thing to look for in both long wheelbase and short wheelbase is the off-road package, which had front headlight squirters. So that's a giveaway. Yep. There yep. should be a orange sticker on the inside of the driver's side uh, B pillar that will tell you that the rear end has LSD. There's no right. factory lockers. It's just a viscous LSD. You can swap later air lockers in. I've I've heard of people doing that. Um, yeah, a couple of our guys that we've gone wheeling with have done that. Yep. AJ's um, truck has that. Yeah, so right off the bat, you'll want to start with a truck that at least has the LSD. They all came with auto lock hubs in the front. Uh, it's best to switch to a set of the ASIN um, manual hubs. They'll work much better. You don't have to back up to engage them. Just get out, flip them on. They're much more reliable. Uh, what else? There's no... That's really it for first gens. I mean, look out obviously for rust. Yeah. Um, the, the a lot of trucks that look really clean are rotted under the carpet over the rear wheels. Yep. Um, and they're also rotted in the front footwell, particularly in the driver's yeah. side. Check the frame out. Make sure that's in good shape. Uh, it's a yeah, fully it's boxed given. frame. They're really really overbuilt frames. For yeah. These trucks. Honestly, even my truck that has rust on the body, the frame while covered in like rust scale. Yeah, it's solid. It's actually it's a rotted. solid, nice frame. Yeah, there's, there's really not. It, it, I, I joke about my truck being really, really rusty, but it's really, really not. It's just the sheet metal in the body. It's just the sheet metal over the rear wheels. And I mean, honestly, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, the, the, actually, the lower part of the radiator support rusts on those pretty bad, too. Oh, the other thing that's more desirable is so the late V6 trucks in the first gens, uh, both short wheelbase and long wheelbase, got coil springs and trailing arms in the yep. rear. They mm -hmm. ride and handle much better than the earlier leaf spring trucks. Um, shocks are easy to replace. Uh, it's got torsion bars in the front, independent front suspension. Uh, the bouncy seat is fun. I mean, you can really get, you know, Land Rover G Wagon looks for, you know, for uh, high life. Yeah, price. high life price, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it it's a they're pretty cool. Um, and they're yeah, really if, if, if the equivalent Toyota in 1990 is 15 grand, then you're going to pay three grand for the Montero. Currently, I mean, they are yeah. really the I mean, they're, they're they're on their way up, but yeah, the secret's kind of getting out. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of auto journalists are getting in on it. So yeah, it's weird. Um, yeah, they're and then so all right, so you move from the first gen to the second gen. Uh, their second gen is basically same frame with some upgrades um early second gens you can get are kind of basic then they had an sr which had wide uh fender flares on the narrow body 
there was a certain time frame, I forget the exact years, where they had twin cam V6s versus the single overhead cam in the beginning. And then the late trucks, like my 99, has the single overhead cam. Uh, it seems to be like the early SR trucks are pretty desirable, which I believe have the twin cams, rear air locker, some other cool stuff. Um, they're, I mean, they're basically an updated, facelifted first gen. So a little yeah. more comfortable, a little more quiet. Um, some of the frame stuff is a little more beefy on the suspension, but not much, not much is different. Early ones you could find manual, but uh, it's unlikely the majority of them are automatic. Uh, if you're importing ones from overseas, they'll be diesel and they'll be manual, which is pretty cool. Yeah, those gas ones coming in for overseas now. Too. Yep. Uh, like my late truck is the really desirable winter package or cold weather package. So it had heated seats, a rear factory rear air locker, the wide body, um, basically reminiscent of what they used for the Piero Evo which uh, those are still not legal here in the U.S., and those are even rare. Um, yeah, those were a, like a numbered production run, weren't they? I believe so. And those are like yeah. super weird because they're, they have a full frame, like a second-gen short wheelbase, and then use uh, independent front and rear suspension like a third-gen. Right. They're like a very early version of a third-gen. Well, they were a homologation vehicle, were they not? Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's not much to look for in the second gens. I mean, you get disc brakes in the rear, which is nice. You get ABS. Yeah. Oh, you get check, uh, super... Ti- check the timing belts. Yeah. Make sure that's been done sometime in the... Oh, yeah. So this recent, is... Recent past. Yeah, so this is important. So the early trucks of the V6, the 3-liter V6, if the timing belt breaks, the engine will turn over and not damage anything. Right, it's not interference. All the later trucks with the 3.5, whether it's dual cam or not, it is an interference engine. So the mm-hmm. time belt should be replaced every 60K. So that's very important. Um, I'm trying to think of other stuff. I mean, definitely check out, like, there's a Montero Facebook group, Adventure Driven Design Forums. Like, everything is pretty much written up for these trucks because um, I don't want to spend the entire episode just talking about these trucks. So that's some okay. real quick stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we could do a whole episode on just Montero's. I feel like we have. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's move on. Uh, I'm going to get this one wrong. Is it uh, Fugarab? Sure. Has the heat killed you yet? Rob Fuge, I think is how he pronounces his name. Rob Fuge. So I assume it's Fuge Rob. Fuge Rob. Has the heat killed you yet? Um, I don't know. Are you talking talking to me from beyond the grave? I'm talking to you live right now. So we're good. All right. Cool. I mean, I'm currently sitting in my air-conditioned apartment. So... There's I'm, no heat here at all. I mean, we might as well. What is the temperature there? This is the Auto Top Weather Podcast. Uh, currently, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, and it's not a super hot day out today. It is 94 degrees. That's not bad. It's uh, it's 80 here in Boston, and tomorrow is going to be the first 90 degree day. So, which really? is pretty late in the season, actually. Yeah, but see, again, the thing is the humidity. Oh, it was like this morning. It was over 70 percent humidity. Okay, well, it's 9% here right now. <laughs> yeah, so it's 94 degrees. So, But, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's coming from Boston where 80 degrees and 70% humidity feels like 100. So I like humidity. Uh, so right now I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable right now. If I was yeah. in Phoenix with 9% humidity, I'd look like SpongeBob when he's out of water, like all dried yeah. up. <laughs> no, you'd be fine with it. It's it's quite it's quite comfortable, like because it's still hot. You walk outside, you feel the heat, but I mean, it's legitimately it's nine percent humidity, so it's yeah. you, you don't even sweat. Like, I mean, if you start working, obviously you're gonna sweat, but just standing outside, it's comfortable. All right, just a couple more questions, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, Stunt nuts forty one thirty. Did Brad track the TDI MPGs in the trip? If so, is he satisfied with the results? You sort of covered it last week, but yeah, we sort of covered it. I'll go back over it real quick. Um, so normally the truck, the truck, yeah, normally the car gets about forty miles per gallon with all highway, mm-hmm. say forty to forty-one. Um, I knocked it down to thirty on the trip. 
Yeah. Um, but it was a couple of different factors. One, the car was overweight. You had a um, roof bag. <laughs> two, I had a giant roof rack. And on top of the giant roof rack, I had a basket. And on top of the basket, I had a waterproof bag full of every article of clothing that I own. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was basically a giant sail on the roof. Uh, the other factor to that is once you're out in the middle of the country, the speed limit is 85 miles an hour. So I was averaging 85 to 95 miles an hour across the middle of the country. So the fact that I still got 30 miles per gallon overloaded with a roof rack um, is pretty damn good. It is pretty good. Yeah. So I was not uh, not upset with that at all. No. all right, I'll take it. All right, cool. Uh, he has a second question, and it's just, can you describe how to how how do Brad's remote appearances work? Is it just a regular phone call with a mic plugged in, uh, landline transmission, FaceTime, Skype, or other? Are you guys still hoping to keep up the regular weekly schedule? So yes, we're hoping to keep up the regularly regular weekly schedule. Uh, ideally, we will. Before you left, we were doing two a week. We're gonna try to get back to that. Um, it's a little bit trickier. We have, we want to make sure we have content. We're not just talking at everyone because that's just like also, boring. Also, a three-hour time delay too, which is yeah. We have to work with that. Um, it's not too bad right now, but we're we're gonna work on that. Um, so last week you used just a regular mic. This week you have a better mic. Was it a Blue Yeti or something? Uh, it's called a yeah Blue something. Yeah, it's a Blue. I think it's a Blue Yeti, Blue Yeti Overland, right? Um, blue snowball blue snowball um it's a yeti mic whatever weird name maybe the manufacturer i thought blue was the manufacturer um so that's plugged into a computer and then we're currently using just google hangouts call um to me it sounds pretty decent on this end probably about as good as we can get it uh we've tried some other remote podcasting apps that record on either end it doesn't work as well I don't feel we tried Discord. It's not working as well as we'd like it to. So um, for now, I think this is the way we're going to do still, it. Yeah, we're still modifying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, this is what we're going to go with pretty much for now, um, you know, because we don't want to uh, spend any no, money on it. So. Blue is the manufacturer. All right, cool. It's blue microphones. Basically, I took uh, I upgraded my phone too. So I took my old phone and because it has a hard headphone jack um that has become the podcast phone so it's via wi-fi and it runs through the mixing board so that's a real quick behind the scenes of how this works and i'm just by myself in my basement or or, or it doesn't work and i'm just by myself in the apartment yeah uh maybe i'll get a cardboard cut out of you and i can just put it in the chair i mean there is there is the option to video chat if you really just be that much I feel like if we video chatted, it would slow the connection down, and then we might be stepping over each other. But it it seems like we're doing pretty well here. So there's that. Whatever you just did to the mic. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, it's funny because I don't have a desk set up here yet, so I'm literally holding the microphone in my hand, and I just scratch an itch on the hand that I'm holding the microphone with. So that's probably what you heard. Yeah. I think it sounds better than it did last week, at least. There's, it's uh, your volume was much better, so. Well, hopefully. I mean, not, can't get any, can't get any worse. No. I mean, I, mean, I can, but I don't have a problem with. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts where they have remote guests, and I, I, it doesn't bother me. I know some people it does, but as long as it's clear, it's not cutting out too much. I'm okay with it. It's, it's just like having someone call into talk radio. It's, it's not much different. Right. And, and again, we'll improve as we go along, and we'll make it better. And every week's a little different. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think that pretty much covers everything, right? I think so. All right, cool. So as always, follow us on Facebook, Auto Off Topic Podcast. We just hit 400 followers on Facebook. Thank you. And uh, Auto Off Topic on Instagram, or at like just under 900. It'd be really sweet to get to a thousand. Um, I think just about everybody that probably listens already follows us, so I don't know how I'm we're sure going to get do. there. Um, but if you don't, you just, need to, you just need to hashtag something really popular. I guess I do. Um, if you don't, please give us a follow. You can follow me on Instagram, Raced in Anger. And where can they follow you, Brad? 
Uh, they can follow me not at TDISS 44, but at TSISS 350. Sweet. All right. Keep cars analog and aim for the roses.